Hello listeners and welcome to the Criterion Cast where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on April 5th, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso and I'll be your host today for episode 205 as we shine the spotlight on Roberto Rossellini's seminal 1945 masterpiece of Italian neorealism, Rome Open City. This is Spine 497 and the first in Rossellini's War Trilogy which also includes Paisan and Germany Year Zero which we will be covering in the next two entire next two installments of the show. It is Palm Sunday during the coronavirus pandemic, and in contrast to the obscenely irresponsible request by President Trump that churches be filled with people on Easter Sunday, just one week away, Italy and the Vatican maintain a ban on public gatherings. This includes Palm Sunday Mass, which Pope Francis conducted today behind closed doors inside St. Peter's Basilica and people around the world can see images of St. Peter's Square, which can hold more than 300,000 people on such occasions, starkly empty. And reminded of Marcello in the film Rome Open City, who says to the priest Don Pietro, this is no time for catechism. We have to close ranks against the common enemy. Rome Open City depicts the end of World War II, which Italy is under a much different kind of lockdown than the one we are currently subject to internationally. But before we get into it, let me introduce our roundtable. First, we have David Blakesley, who is sheltering in place in Michigan, currently has the unfortunate distinction of ranking third in the United States in numbers of confirmed cases of COVID-19. But you're not one of them, are you, David? How are you? No, I'm healthy, very well, um, trying to stay busy and active. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk with you guys about this great movie, but uh, I'm doing very well. And, uh, you know, definitely echo your thoughts and concerns about the people who are really uh, struggling with the pain and the anxiety of this pandemic and, and the care that patients need and just the uncertainty that kind of hovers over not just our society, but really around the whole world of how this is going to turn out and how this is going to affect us personally and culturally. So uh, glad to have the opportunity to talk about a very important film that I think does resonate with the times we're in these days. It's good to have you. And the rest of us are in California. We have Scott Nye. How are you this morning, Scott? Scott, are you with us? Sorry, forgot to unmute my mic. Uh, I <laughs> okay. am well as well. Uh, just trucking along, trying to take it day by day. Yeah. And we also have Arik Devins, who's with me in the Bay Area. What are you up to this morning, Arik? Just excited to uh, to chat with the, with you fine folks about this, this movie. And you're seeing all of the films in the trilogy for the first time. So we'll be very curious to see what your first take is, especially during these times. Yeah. Yep. First time. Uh, so we're going to talk about the films in depth listeners. So be warned that all details will be revealed over the course of our conversation. Um, but before we get into the film itself, I'd like to begin by talking about neorealism and the sort of extraordinary time during which Rome of City was made. Um, do any of you have thoughts about the sort of birth of neorealism and the place this film holds in, in that mythology? Well, I guess I'll open it up by just saying, <laughs> yeah, this this feels to me like, um, you know, a real breakthrough. I think probably maybe to appreciate it, you know, most vividly, it'd be good to watch other films of the, you know, 1945 uh, when this film was released. I mean, 
yeah, to me, that's just a huge piece of it is that uh, this film was made under such dire circumstances, almost like these people had no business making movies. Are you kidding me? There's a war yeah. on, right? Um, but because there was this drive to, to tell their story and to get the news out there of what it was like to survive this um, really extraordinary moment, um, I think that was just the artistic and creative impulse expressing itself. And in a sense, neorealism was really just born out of necessity. It wasn't a bunch of, uh, you know, artists and intellectuals sitting in a cafe saying, what's the new thing that we can develop and invent, you know, for creativity's sake. It was like, how do we get this story out there? What, what kind of shortcuts can we take now that the studios have been shut down and, um, we really have no sets to work in and we've got to get the cameras out in the streets and in the stairwells and in the, uh, you know, real life apartments where people actually live so that, uh, people can understand, uh, what we've gone through and, and what we're dealing with now. I think it's just a, a really wonderful testimony to the, the creative power that, uh, you know, drove these people to express themselves and, and, you know, to capture it with, with really great artistry that, that moves us and, and touches us, even if we're, you know, uh, you know, 60, 70, 80 years away from their lived experience, uh, we, we can connect with these stories. And, and so, you know, neorealism as a tradition, I think, you know, was kind of you know, maybe not exactly born here. I guess there are a few precursors, but this seems to be the one that kind of got the world's attention. In yeah, a it became the standard way. for it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right um, that the immediacy of the film, I think, is what matters because inside that conversation of what is new realism and where did it start and does this even apply to Rome Open City because there are some sort of more strict definitions of that movement that this this kind of violates in several different ways. But um, just to take a couple steps back, just so that if listeners aren't aware, this film was made in 1944 at the close of World War II during the Republic of Salo. So the north and central parts of Italy were occupied by German troops, which had come in after an armistice was signed with um, southern factions of Italy um, with the Allies. And the Nazis came in and took over and set up a puppet government. Mussolini is still alive. He had been dethroned uh, but and, and then imprisoned, but then he'd been rescued and then sort of set up near Lake Garda in this sort of um, mostly ornamental position all orders were coming from Berlin. And we still had fascists uh, within Italy. Some of them, a majority of them, uh, at least in the north, were aligned with the um, Gestapo. And then we had um, an Italian resistance movement, which was kind of a, a puzzle of different factions. Some of them had been underground for years, like the Marxists who had competed uh, with Mussolini for power back in the 1920s. And then you had the Catholic Church and you had some socialists and 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 other factions that didn't necessarily always have the same goals politically but during this time of of crisis united kind of under under a single front for the most part and um rome had just been liberated when rossellini started filming uh i guess production started officially in january of 45 and it took many months to make the movie because like David was saying, you know, studios weren't available for the most part. I think there were scenes and sets built on smaller 
studio stages, but Chinachita, like the actually like fascist endorsed studio system, was uh, being used like a homeless shelter or something. It was it was it was definitely out of business, and film stocks and the things like that weren't available. Um, so it was really this hardy um, grassroots effort to get a film done while there was still war going on around them. Um, but depicted the time, uh, the time that the film depicts is, is earlier, uh, back in 1944, when Rome was still occupied. Some of the things about neorealism that I, I think I wanted um, possibly you guys to weigh in on uh, is there's a style that's attributed to neorealism often, and some of the sort of um, scrappy look to the film has been removed um, after restoration, like the the elements that were, were bought on the black market that didn't always line up and kind of produced this um, almost documentary feel to the film just because the materials weren't um, in the most prime condition. Um, and then there's the use of a documentary style of, of setting up shots um, and editing, like lack of montage, um, other tenets of neorealism uh, that are usually um, thought of as like the most important include working with non-actors or location shooting, like Dave was saying, you know, going shooting in stairwells, going shooting in the streets. And Rome Open City is not the best example of this, so that's why it ends up being sort of a con- holds a contentious place in that dialogue. Do do you guys think of Rome Open City as being an important part of neorealism um, because it embraces that focus on the working class and people under duress and, you know, the real problems of daily life? Um, or is that not enough? Is it is it a problem to think of it as, you know, a good standard bearer for neorealism because it it had stars in it? I mean, Anna Mignani was, was a recognizable name, as was Aldo Fabrizi. Um, some of the things stylistically it arrived at just out of convenience, not out of a sort of a, a drive to create a new kind of cinema. So if anybody has any thoughts on that, I'd be interested. I think what? that's common with a lot of film movements, though, that things kind of get arrived at accidentally, and then their inspiration is kind of what carries forth. I think that's the case here. Like, so many of the things you're talking about, yeah, they chose bad film stocks that they had. They used non-actors because... A lot of actors were tied up, still getting out from their occupation. Um, the handheld camera work was just because there was little equipment to go around. Um, but the movement it birthed, or at least uh, made, uh, kind of brought to a wider audience, I guess, um, was powerful enough that I think this is still a key film in that movement, whether it wanted to be or not. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. A lot of that stuff, like I think the, the point that, echoes with me and it's been said by basically everyone now that that it was this was mostly just out of necessity and like it, you you learn these interesting things where it's like that the, the we, we keep repeating the story of um all the film stock they use but i saw something that said that they actually only used like maybe three different kinds of film and that the issue was more in the processing and that it was like the labs were not doing a great job of processing the film and that's why um i think i saw that as a justification for why the restoration is a is acceptable but mm. um and if that's true, you think about it like that's even another layer of like, you know, th- this is just sort of happenstance. And I think that, you know, as we'll get in to the film, it's not neorealist in its, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's pretty much a melodrama. Right. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, but it does have sort of the, the social concerns and it does have some of the 
the suffering issue, you know, the attachment to uh, trying to explore this period of suffering and and trying to deconstruct this this time. And and I think if you look back at sort of the criticism of neorealism as the period ended, it, Rome Open City looks more like a part of it from that perspective, maybe than it does if you're going through from the beginning, because yeah. they're looking back and saying, like, y'all are depressing and we really want to be more motivated and inspired. And and then some people are going, no, actually, we're going to head into, you know, like alienation and, you know, some of the post-war prosperity stuff of, like, say, an Antonioni. But, like, the, in, in that respect, yeah, Rome Open City does look very heavy and very, you know, depressing and, and on some level. But yeah, if you if you're going forward, it's still very much a, a melodrama. Right. That maybe doesn't hold up to the purity of like the bicycle thieves or Umberto D. Yeah, it, it's it for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have any of you seen? I mean, a, a common straw man for the the kind of films that neorealism was rebelling against are these white telephone films that were produced during the fascist era. These these comedies that get their name because they're usually about, you know, the aristocratic domestic dramas that the rich people had white telephones and nobody else had them. Black was the common color, so they just got this nickname. But I have never seen any of those films to to contrast them. Um, I also feel like that's somewhat a, a false enemy, and I'll explain what that means. But is, is that something that any of you have ever had the opportunity to look at? I'm not sure what the market is like for those films, yeah. actually. <laughs> Maybe an interesting little uh, Criterion Channel, uh, you know, set if they could ever get their hands on them. Yeah. It would be it would be interesting. I mean, I you know, to kind of switch over to Japan, you look at the Kanoshita films from World War II, oh, or even Kurosawa's it. films from that, uh, from that era. It is very, it's always fascinating to see, you know, wartime propaganda, particularly from the, you know, quote-unquote enemy's perspective of, how uh, these you know fascist regimes were choosing to entertain their publics with these government sanctioned you know, entertainments um, obviously i think you know, here you've got not just the you know the preoccupation with real people in their everyday lives and and how they're disrupted and in some cases enlisted in the resistance effort or at least just trying to get by the best they can but you've also got you know really overtly uh, subversive political content you know an open affirmation of uh, you know communist uh resistance and 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 uh subterfuge sabotage you know blowing stuff up uh, putting people in danger i mean you know taking the fight to 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 the fascists and and that's you know that's something obviously that italian cinema had not <laughs> openly accepted because of censorship for you know well over a decade and now it's like okay we're going to finally you know tell it like it is and it, as as we've said this this is melodramatized there is some idealism there is even some what you might call mythologizing and manipulation. I think that's kind of alluded to in the essays and the, you know, really yeah. beautiful box set that, uh, that we're kind of retelling the story in a way that uh, tends to favor our cause. It, it, uh, de-emphasizes some of the collaboration with the Nazis that was happening at this very time. You know, the, the Nazi headquarters are just full of Germans. There's no Italians, uh, facilitating the the occupation but that is what was happening in real life so even in Rossellini himself later years there's some little snippets where he talks about we're just here to tell it like it is well there's a little bit of you know self-serving or rose-tinted glasses or nostalgia going on and and just you know sanitizing if you will the the really nasty gritty truth of 
of how morally compromised so many people were. But but that's okay. I mean, these are people recovering from serious uh, social trauma, and I don't begrudge them the desire to tell a story that's uh, that's therapeutic, that's uh, you know cathartic and reconciling because they're picking their lives back up off the mat and and trying to get moving again that's that's a perfectly their prerogative because the story itself is is so compelling and so emotionally engaging yeah i think it is okay i think you're right um but it's interesting to think of it as the way that you laid it out there that it's almost just a different kind of propaganda like instead of making fascist propaganda in one way this is kind of propaganda for the italian resistance movement if you if you look up white telephone films by the way you on wikipedia you can't even get a list of like the names that they yeah, it's hard. So I don't, I don't know that we're going to be seeing any of those. And honestly, they're probably not very good. But, movie, movie had a, a page. Uh, so clearly they had a group oh, wow, of them showing okay. one point. Yeah. And Vittoria De Sica was the director of like three of them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I take back my, they, maybe they're not very good. But because I do love those Japanese uh, propaganda films, especially the Kenoshita set. I, I think you and Trevor did a phenomenal job of covering that on your Eclipse uh, podcast. But um, the way that those films go from like pure propaganda to he's, you can see him subverting the propaganda to him getting banned and then doing the post-war film, which is American yeah. propaganda. It's, it, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. So I, I, re- I resonate with the idea that, that this is almost propaganda. Although I do want to point out that there is one Italian in the German headquarters that the main guy is always talking to. Right. Like a translator or something like that. Yeah. No, there's that one guy that he like meets with all the time that, that, He's explaining stuff oh, to. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right. The... He's like the police. The police, right? Yeah, something like yeah. that. He's, yeah. he's the Italian representative to the to the Gestapo. Yeah. But they're not really singled out, right? They're, they no. do kind of go under the radar. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. For sure. so, so this film isn't necessarily anti-fascist in a sense. Not necessarily. Right? Yeah. It's anti-German. And right. It's anti-occupation. Right. I don't. I don't know that you can tell what Rossellini's own politics of the time were from this film. Yeah, it's it's slipped with Rossellini. I mean, I think he's been he's been quoted as saying um, on one of the features uh, the with the priest that he says he didn't believe in anything. Yeah. Um, and he says that you know his uh, his films aren't about committing to a message. And I think you can really like you can really read religious themes out of his work. Obviously, yes. some of them very obvious and some yes. of them less so. In this film, quite obvious at times. But you do have to question, like, is this actually polemical? Is this didactic in any way other than anti-Nazi? And I think it's interesting to, for that reason, suss out what are the aspects of this filmmaking that actually are carryover from fascist filmmaking tradition? Um, this is another thing that's really hard for me to put my finger on because you can't see the films. They're, it's really hard to see. But I think some of the discussion focused around white telephone films and how kind of lightweight and and useless as popular entertainment they were ignores that, you know, Mussolini's son, Vittorio Mussolini, was, I think, if not responsible for founding Shinchita, I think that was his father, but he, he ran a film journal, he was a director himself, he made a lot of films with people like Antonioni and Visconti and Rossellini, and the kind of films they were making, in fact, the trilogy of films before the war trilogy some people call Rossellini's fascist trilogy because he made it in cooperation with the fascist film industry including Mussolini's son Um, and some of the stylistic edicts that like the rules of making films um, are very different than the white telephone films it was about creating a sense of authenticity using uh, you know film footage and other documentary footage um, 
you had to have uh, current events. Um, they wanted to have um, non-actors just for the sense of realism. Um, so all of those ideas that get attributed to neorealism actually were edicts of the fascist filmmaking industry, which is fascinating to me, but I can't personally verify it. We have um, in, the, in the fascist trilogy uh, directed by Rossellini, there's something called The White Ship from 1941, A Pilot Returns in 1942, and The Man with the Cross in 1943. Yeah, I, I was interested to learn about The Man with the Cross because I think that's referenced in some of the uh, supplements in the box set. Um, yeah, if you would have asked me before I started really digging into this, I would have thought, Maybe Rome Open City was Rossellini's first film. <laughs> you know, as far as, <laughs> yeah. it's, it, and it does seem like it's the the gateway into Rossellini's, you know, obviously his later career, and it's it's a mature work as I'm learning, you know, recently learned. Uh, this isn't just kind of his novice effort by any means. Um, it would be fascinating to see those films. I think the only earlier Italian film I'm aware of that I've seen is The Children Are Watching Us, which is another. Uh, Criterion DVD only release, kind of from those more obscure years. Uh, was that a De Sica film? Um, I can't yeah. even remember. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and and that one has a a lot of sentiment. In fact, there's definitely some parallels between the the use of children and the emotional tug at the heart, uh, especially within the Italian cultural context and the way children are, you know, portrayed and and really you know pretty blatantly used to, you know, uh, stir the pathos of, of viewers here uh, because of, you know, their relationship with, with the priest and, and the, you know, the role that they play in the very final scenes of the film. Uh, you know, the, the, the innocence of children, but also the fact that these children have had to grow up really fast and have been, you know, corrupted and endangered and, and traumatized again by, you know, their lived experience. But that's yeah, that's about as far back as I go with Italian cinema. Certainly intrigued to to learn more as as uh, you know we proceed from this conversation. Yeah, it'd be great if if the channel would make some of this stuff available uh, to people to do that research. Um, but let's get into let's finally get into the the film itself. Does anybody feel uh, equipped and ready to to do a plot synopsis, or would you like me to do that? Arik, you've you've seen the film for the first time. Uh, why don't you why don't you give us that take? <laughs> Okay. Um, the film sort of follows a few different plot threads. Now that I said that I can do that, can I actually do it? We're going to find out. Uh, the, the, the film, Take one. <laughs> yeah, for real. The, so the film takes place, as you mentioned, in Rome in 44 as the German occupation continues and the German uh, Gestapo or SS are trying to arrest an engineer who's uh, named Manfredi, who's a communist and a leader of the resistance. And he, the, the movie starts with him sort of seeing them arrive at his boarding house and sort of running out of, into the night. And um, he goes to the home of another friend of his who's also in the resistance, but she, he's not there. And he meets uh, his the friend's fiance, and she's also one of the main characters that sets up in the film. So the the film follows this engineer, his friend, the friend's fiance, the Catholic priest, uh, Don Pietro who is sort of helping the resistance transfer messages and things and the German Gestapo and also the girlfriend mistress or whatever of this engineer who is addicted to cocaine and being sort of set up by the Germans to be a, uh, um, uh, informer. And, uh, and the film follows the, the various adventures of the engineer and his friend as they try to elide, 
uh, capture by the by the Germans and various getaways and runaways and things and the 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 intersecting plots of the the son of the of the fiance who's a, a child but also involved in sort of like a child bomb squad trying to also be part of the resistance and and just all these various characters who are kind of going about their lives under this uh, circumstance. And Scott, we haven't heard much from you. What what is your What's your first impressions of this film? I know you've seen it before, but what, what's your overall take of the movie? Yeah, this is, uh, I first saw when they first bought the DVD box, that which I still have, I never upgraded to the Blu-ray. Um, I had heard about it in film school and heard that it was like largely unavailable, which I don't know how true that was at the time. Criterion's releasing it felt like a major event, um, at least especially to get it as cleaned up and nice looking as it did for the DVD era. And I was just blown away from it from the start. Um, I really, I never really liked Italian neorealism as I was getting into film, and I kind of got into it more and more in the ensuing years. But this was a, proved a better gateway than I think Bicycle Thieves, um, which was probably the only other neorealist film I'd seen before this. But just the mixing of melodrama with the kind of handheld aesthetic, and the way the film stock seemed to be barely holding together, the way the actors had the certain immediacy of their performance, the environment way it captured kind of the post-war and in this case immediately post-war environs and the way that uh i think we've kind of already talked about it kind of acting as a sort of propaganda but the way that i think they were choosing to remember this time and the way it kind of set forth a certain template for remembering the horrible experiences of the war years was really interesting to me and really kind of inspiring that they were holding on to not only the good parts of the way that it you know, families really tried to stick together and were forced into close quarters, but we're trying to make it work. And the way that kind of little romance is still continued under occupation and the way that the relationships they'd built over the years kind of carried them through, but also that they were choosing to remember how tragic it all was. And the, especially the way the film concludes in the final section, they weren't kind of ignoring it in the, fa- in the face of uh, the ultimate victory and ultimate relief. You know, a, a more optimistic film would conclude with uh the allies invasion or some other kind of victory uh to be like and thus the italian people carried forth but the film doesn't it ends very tragically and they're not ignoring everything terrible that went down during those years which in its own way i think is very inspirational and very fitting for a certain catholic mindset i suppose but if nothing else that they don't want to look away from what had happened during that time what had really gone on Right, they're really memorializing the the suffering and the pain and the the horrors that they've lived through, and and really sacramentalizing it. You almost might say, you know, I guess Francesco and Marcello they get away to live to fight another day, but it's not really clear what happens to them. We just don't see them captured. But but you know, all the other main characters uh, are either martyred or. Um, in the case of Marina, the the cabaret singer who was in a relationship with Manfredi, you know her her traitorous heart and her weakness and her um, kind of her willingness to be exploited is is kind of you know revealed to her tragically at the end, which I think was also again a pretty cathartic moment for viewers who may have had their own you know conscience uh, tarnished by any efforts that they've had to collaborate or compromise 
which is an understandable human thing to do in the midst of a, an occupation, especially under a force as brutal and relentless as the Gestapo and the Nazis were. I mean, they, they did not play around. They, they, if you were not, you know, cooperative, they, they would blow you away just on the moment's notice. And, and we see, you know, examples of that. So this, this was no joke. Uh, so you can't completely condemn Marina, even though she's, you know, certainly made an object of derision with her, with her cocaine addiction, with her, uh, softness and, and her and willingness to compromise and, and succumb to corruption. Uh, it's, it's still, it's still something that you can understand why a woman in her situation might have fallen prey to these manipulators. But ultimately this is really about the heroism, the sacrifice, the, the, the force of, of will and, and solidarity that the people really had to, had to fall back on that, that they had no choice if they were going to survive this, uh, despite, you know, the sense of everybody kind of being for themselves. I think the, you know, the scene at the, at the bakery where they just kind of storm the ramparts and grab whatever loaves they can and even take a few other things is kind of an example of the kind of bestial nature of surviving, uh, in an occupation situation like this, but you know, yeah, that scene stood out particularly yeah. during this mm-hmm. time, didn't? Mm-hmm. To see people gathering, looking for items that weren't readily available that somebody was <laughs> hoarding, it's, it's, it resonated. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that that's where you can start making applications from this film and its story. I mean, you know, let's let's not exaggerate. We're not quite in wartime deprivations, but. We're just getting started with this thing, too. Who knows where it's going to wind up, at least in, in some communities. It, it could get pretty rough. Yeah, you're, you're right that we should be careful not to draw too uh, clean a parallel. But I was thinking, like, who who are they holding on to these big goods for? And I guess the answer would be, like, the Gestapo, right? Like, they weren't making these goods available for the common people because they were they were probably giving them to the either the aristocracy or, or the German officers. And I mean, we have similar situation kind of like in the United States where there's a stockpile of things and we're being told like, these aren't for the states, they're for the government, what? Right, if you're a politician or a pro athlete, oh, here's your COVID-19 test right on the spot. But if you're an ordinary person who's got symptoms, well, give us a week or two and we'll get back to you, right? Yeah, yeah. And Scott brought up that the film is segmented, that there's two main chapters to it. And I I think he he first alluded to the way the first chapter ends is is very cathartic. And then, of course, the way the second chapter ends is cathartic. And I think think it maybe is split into two halves, uh, maybe because Russell was interested in this kind of story segmentation, because Paisan ends up being like six chapters, right? But I think the the service in this film, um, it really has to do with, maybe Anna Mignani's character arc, because it really kind of varnishes her arc that it's its own chapter. And she was a she was a star, and it's a surprise to see her die at the end of the first chapter. Um, do you guys feel like that that ends up narratively punctuating that in a useful way, or does it feel like another maybe melodramatic uh, piece of punctuation that we could have done without? I think it's a useful punctuation, and it... Um... It's curious because at first her death seems almost glossed over. You don't you get kind of a lingering shot on her son rushing to her, but it doesn't kind of linger in the way that a star's death usually would in a typical melodrama. It kind of rushes off to then uh, the prisoners being freed by the uh, resistance attack on the trucks. 
but then by punctuating the act a few moments later, it gives you time to kind of reflect on that. So it kind of has it both ways where you get kind of the rush of activity that caused her to die and which caused so many people to die during this time where there wasn't time to linger on it uh, because so much else was going on. But then it kind of lets you stop and breathe as things kind of settle again, which I, I think it really works out really well and kind of lets it fit more into a familiar audience structure so that the other techniques within the film aren't so bracing. Um, it kind of gives you a moment to kind of catch your breath. So it, it might be a calculated move or might be too calculated, depending on how uh, strict your beliefs are about neorealism. But I, I think it's an effective one. Yeah, I do wonder if there were like, wasn't an intermission in the theatrical presentation or if it just kept rolling kind of like it does on the Blu-ray because there's the end of part one and then boom, there's part two right at you. It's not the, the length of a movie that would typically have like an intermission if you think about some of the you know, biblical epics of the 50s and 60s or things of that sort. But I do agree. I think having that that pause in there allows that moment to say, wow. I mean, because, yeah, the first time through, uh, it's an incredibly shocking and almost wastefully random and cruel exit for this really compelling presence. Anna Magnani, you know, again, the, the Criterion essay, you know, titles it A Star is Born, and she really did go on to have a pretty exceptional career and and presence in screen. And, and this is really what kind of catapulted her from, you know, cabaret star and, and popular entertainment, you know, figure for the locals into a, a really world-class uh, actress and, and, and a unique presence on screen. Um, but it's just so it's so abrupt and it's so unsentimental. I mean, you know, there's certainly a framing that goes on. There's the whole parallel parallel to the Pieta and all of that. And it's, you know, again, it played up for, you know, a very strong um, emotional effect. But it's yeah, as Scott's already said, it's it's not it's not lingered over. It's 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 brutal. It's harsh. It's, you know, climactic and and just incredibly wasteful, you know, from that sense of wow, this person, this woman, you know, the, the day that she's supposed to be married, this woman who's endured so much and in a impulsive moment, uh, her life is the one that's lost. And, you know, a half an hour later, her fiance is running free because, you know, the, the truck that he was in gets, uh, ambushed and, and he's, you know, he goes on to, uh, you know, pursue his career, but you know, his life is forever altered. I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful when you step back and just reflect on what was communicated in those few moments. And she was pregnant with their child. This was mm -hmm. their wedding day. Yeah, it's a lot at stake there in that moment. And in relationship to the documentary style of the, of the filmmaking, um, I thought one of the most powerful parts about that sequence is that we see it as if we're uh, a stranger from afar witnessing this. I mean, even though she was kind of our de facto main character, like we don't get that close up. We, we, we just kind of observe this tragedy at, at great distance. We see the sun come in and then the priest come in and then we get that Pieta um, figure design that you, that you spoke of. But I think one of the reasons why that doesn't bother me as much as it would have is that it somehow Rosalina staged this thing, but he still doesn't quite milk the moment. Yeah, it, it, I mean, tasteful is maybe not the right word, but it's it's just presented without gloss, without sentiment, uh, without um, you know embellishing the moment to you know where you know in a more conventional film you'd have the strings and the soft gauzy focus and the dying words and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that's all dispensed with here. And what do you guys think of the fact that you know, when 
uh, Pina, Anna Mignani's character, dies, then we, I at least as a viewer kind of become aware that we didn't really have a main character in this story. Like maybe she was the, the protagonist, but when, when she passes, then, then we're juggling um, between the other characters. And, and I think Don Pietro kind of becomes the main character of part two. And um, Manfredo ends up, uh, Manfredi, I'm sorry, Manfredi ends up being almost like the, um, the device, uh, like a, a Hitchcockian device around which the other characters rotate. That he's not really our main character, but he's, he's, he's in some way the thing that, that motivates everyone to, to gather. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a focal point. I mean, he is, in a way, a, a kind of a messianic character, certainly the way he's portrayed in those concluding scenes of his torture. Uh, you, you can't help but think of uh, you know, Christ on the cross, uh, the, the, the way the blood is streaming down his face and the wounds to his side. And, and his hair is even done up almost like a crown of thorns. I mean, it's, it's, pretty, yeah. it's pretty powerful. Um, but you're right, you know, just as in... Um, Jesus movies, you know, you don't typically get interiority of what was Jesus thinking? What was it like? He's more of a, he's an externally observed symbol of suffering and pathos and, and torment. Um, and you know, you read into it, whatever theological implications, you know, strike you as true and meaningful, but, but the visuals are, are all sort of from the outside looking in, I think with, Don Pietro, we're we're getting more into his you know, interior world as he's sitting there. His glasses have been broken, but he's he's witnessing the the suffering through the the screams and the anguish. Uh, sitting there, being you know, berated and and tempted by the Gestapo, and and really um, as a priest, recognizing that this is his moment of trial. This is you know, you know whatever led him into this vocation, whatever training he's been through, uh, he is truly being put to the test now. You know, does he really back up and affirm in the torment of this moment the things that he's believed about, you know, suffering and about uh, piety and about, you know, maintaining your good confession even when all the pressures are coming down upon you to, to compromise and to apostatize and all of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very powerful. And again, uh, it's Rossellini connecting with his primarily, you know, Catholic, uh, viewer base, but then also reaching out beyond the strictly religious to an international community that says, Hey, let me tell you what's been going on in Italy and, and communicating even to people outside the Catholic faith, uh, something universal and, and very poignant and profound. And I think that's, yeah, I, I think, you know, Don Pietro is the, is the central figure, um, with Manfredi being the, you know, the, the focal point for, you know, this is why the Gestapo was, you know, doing this dragnet in the first place. They had, had word that this engineer was, you know, out to sabotage their efforts. They're going to get him. And in, in a way they, they had their moment of triumph. They captured him. They, they, put him to death. They could not get him to talk. And so their ultimate strategy was vanquished. And also the, the whole premise of the occupation, the fact that they could not get these weak Italians to, uh, to divulge the information, you know, put their whole master race theory, uh, turned it on its head and, and delegitimized whatever, uh, notions they had about why this war had to be fought in the first place, which, you know, I, I think that's probably, again, 
more mythic than realistic. I don't know that the Germans had that moment of <laughs> self-criticism and realization that, oh my goodness, why did we do this in the first place? But uh, Rossellini and his scriptwriters are taking the liberty to put those words in their mouth and and just you know point out the futility of this entire war and all of the horror and chaos that it unleashed, and, and for what? This flawed premise to begin with. Yeah, very well said. I mean, I, I think some of those attempts to give a um, a moment of regret from that one drunk officer Hartman, who yeah. who talks about you know when. So let's see the apartment where this torture is taking place, where they've they've got uh, Manfredi and the priest and this Austrian defector all contained um, in cells on the opposite side. Then there's like then there's the office area and then there's the parlor area. So in the parlor area, you've got a bunch of Germans drinking and you have uh, uh, Marina with with the um, Gestapo, Ingrid. Oh, as, as a side, let's like eventually address what is with one of the Germans being named Ingrid and the other one being named Bergman. Yes, <laughs> prophecy. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird. I can't find anything on it. And then she ends up, uh, you know, sending the letter uh, notoriously after uh, notoriously uh, after <laughs> Paisan and, and solicits their a collaboration and ultimate romantic romantic entanglement but tell but you Rosslini was deep man he really was in it's touch so with <laughs> it's such an incredibly weird detail of this film that i i've never heard any commentary on have you guys heard anything about this ingrid bergman character naming no but i did notice it and it was very weird yeah so okay so the, the so in the parlor we've got the one uh drunk officer hartman who says that you know all germans are good at is killing 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 and and sowing hatred everywhere and 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 if, and if we don't do anything about you know if this hatred will just devour us and we'll die without the slightest hope um and he's he's silenced by by the other officer bergman um but this 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 sort of moment of of internal struggle ends up being for not because he's actually the guy at the very end of the film who pulls the trigger on the priest, you know, after Manfredi is tortured to death, he doesn't end up confessing any details. The, um, the priest doesn't reveal any details. Like David was saying, you know, he's been put under a lot of pressure, Don Pietro to, to, to realize that, you know, he doesn't have that much in common with the Marxists anyway, you know, they're going to betray you. You might as well align with us. Um, which I think there's some there's some commentary on the flexibility of the church's uh, uh, alliances that the church during this period did have a tendency to align with whoever ended up creating more opportunities for the church to consolidate power, um, like the Lateran Pacts of 1929 when they legitimized the Mussolini regime in exchange for, you know, legitimizing the city state of of the Vatican. Um, so, so a lot of pressure on Don Pietro to, to not support, um, the, the Marxist, uh, rebel in the other room. Neither one of them talks. Manfredi's killed in the torture room. The priest is taken out to be killed by gunfire the next day. I, I think this might be the next day. It's, it's outdoors. Um, and then there's a whole firing squad of Italian, uh, fascist, uh, militia guys. And they're told to fire on the priest um it looks like they all intentionally miss and then the uh the german officer hartman who had this drunken confession the night before um walks over and pulls the trigger himself and 
this is the, the second ending of the film. This is the end of part two. And we have the audience of the children um, that I think uh, Arik, you mentioned, they were also responsible for, for some of the guerrilla efforts um, earlier in the story. And they, they walk away from the, from the scene of the assassination and we, we see them going down this, uh, this path with the city of Rome in the background. Um, you see the uh, Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, sort of crowning that, that skyline. And, and that's where the, the film ends. Uh, what, do, what do you ultimately feel? Um, I know you said there's this sort of pessimistic message, Scott, that, that actually to you resonated with a more truthful version of, of actually what history delivers. But um, how, do we, how do you guys feel about the way that this ending kind of completes the melodrama? That's an interesting uh, perspective. Um, for the melodrama, I think it refocuses the film on a set of uh, particular people, and especially, I think, the kids, and refocuses our attention on what all this has meant for them. You know, the kids, even though they've been important players in the action, uh, have never been the central players. Just reconsidering, that, as much as we've seen that this be a story of adults suffering and adults sacrificing, the kids will ultimately have to bear uh, the price of the adults' decisions and really for decades to come. And it's interesting to think that, you know, 15 years later, a lot of these kids will be zooming around in a very little Chivita kind of environment <laughs> and yeah. uh, might have a very different perspective on their lives than they do at this moment. But nevertheless, that this is, they'll, they'll have to bear the brunt of the legacy, I suppose, of the war. Well, I think, you know, it is a very fascinating connection you draw there, Scott, with La Dolce Vita, because the, um, you know, the, the deprivations of childhood spent under those conditions and then the, you know, maybe completely unexpected, but, you know, once you get it, you get become used to it, a prosperity, you know, the miracle of the post-war boom and all of that. Uh, kind of, to me, it engenders kind of a get-it-while-you-can mentality. I mean, it's like you just don't know when uh, the coffers will be emptied out again, so enjoy it in the moment. I mean, I, I think, and then even adults, you know, it's not just the children, but, you know, the the, the older, you know, you know, 30-somethings and 40-somethings in La Jolta Vito are also kind of behaving in that same kind of indulgent way. So I, th I think it's a fascinating through line, of course, Rossellini and nobody else could have predicted that, but uh, it is kind of a fascinating arc if you want to just follow the story of Italian cinema over the next uh, you know fifteen twenty years, starting with this particular film. Again, it's 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 a moving finale because you see that the failure, you know, there's there's a there's a strength and there's a a triumph in terms of resolution, but there's also just a you know, a failure in that it's come to this, that that uh, this good priest, maybe this priest who's had the moral courage to break with even some of the corrupt institutional uh, authorities to say, you know what, I'm not going to hold it against you that you're a communist. I'm not going to hold it against you that you're a unmarried woman who's pregnant uh, with your fiance's child. Uh, I'll still marry you. He, he's definitely coloring outside the lines of what a strictly you know, orthodox, obedient priest ought to be doing. But this is not the time or place for tisk tisk, you know, correctives uh, um, or or for towing the party line. I mean, th these are literally matters of life and death. And he recognizes that beyond um, 
factional affiliations and and ideologies there's there's something you know really important and humane going on here and that that may be where Rossellini's politics are found it's like not we're not you know Italian Catholics or Italian communists or Italian socialists or uh, just you know kind of black marketeers just grabbing while they're getting good we're Italians and and uh, we're Romans and we've got to find our way out of this chaos and and restore some sense of hope for you know a, a better future uh, now that the siege has been lifted and the, the Nazis have been expelled, let's tell the story of where we've been and try to set the stage for where we're going from here. And I think that's that's where this movie really transcends just, you know, um, the, the conventions of telling a, a, a powerful story. It's it's really it's a story about humanity and and uh, how we rebound from crisis and how we how we endure the unendurable. And and so to me, that's what makes this really a timeless classic, even as you recognize some of the conventions and some of the 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 schemes that that he he utilized to give this story that emotional resonance that connects with broad audiences. I totally agree, uh, David, that it's um, that it the heart of this film is is in the moral questions that it asks, you know, and, and it's probably too reductive uh, ultimately to ask, is this film neorealist? Is this film? Uh, nationalistic is this film fascist is this film you know marxist any of those questions i think fail to come up with satisfying answer because i think it's just mostly interested in this question like what does it mean to have an unshakable faith in something mm-hmm. you know and that's that's the question that the, the, the priest has to face also you know the marxist rebel and also the germans i mean also the drug addict i mean everybody has an unshakable faith in something in this film and it gives us different answers to what does it mean to not crack to not deviate from from this faith that you have and ultimately like scott was saying like i think it's i think it's inspiring it, it's really interesting I've, I've been sort of listening to everything y'all have been saying from the lens of i forget who brought this up early maybe it was david that that this film is almost propaganda sort of pro italian propaganda and that's a really interesting idea to me because there is sort of an element to the film that where it it kind of is glossing over uh first of all the fact that you know until very shortly before the film begins italy was allied with uh germany and as you as we've discussed rossellini was making you know a fascist trilogy with the help of the ruling mussolini and and italians were very pro mussolini for a long long time and additionally the film sort of glosses over all of the things happening in rome like for example the uh, um, entire jewish population of rome being uh, deported, you know, when the Nazis took over and, and just things like that and, and sort of presents, as David, I think, mentioned, a, sort of not a lot of Italian collaborationism, even the sort of the drug dealer who at first I thought, oh, is she Italian? But no, she's German. And just maybe that one police chief and some soldiers who are kind of nameless. It's it's interesting. It's an interesting way to look at the film to see it. it, it is it also, in addition to, I think, Jordan, you're, I definitely agree with you that uh, faith, even in horrible things, uh, evil things, is a big part of the plot line of the film. But also, is it sort of mythologizing the Italian struggle, which is real? I mean, you know, they were at this point under occupation, but is such a kind of a weird historical reimagining of 
their culpability and their involvement in sort of the previous 10 years of war or, or even 20 because i think Mussolini came to power a little earlier in the late 20s in world events do you know what i mean yeah i think if you are like a hardcore resistance fighter against Mussolini from like the 30s on there's a pretty good case that could be made that this movie is really kind of a whitewash you know kind of yeah, a soft yeah. peddling of what the resistance was really like and and kind of who who was doing it when it was really tough and seemingly impossible versus who kind of jumped on board when it looked like, <laughs> oh, the Americans are like on our doorsteps so that we'll be liberated any day now. Now it's time to get get with the resistance, which might be, you know, the, the role that many in the audience might have found themselves in. Like they were they were OK with fascism and they were even kind of OK when the Germans came in because, you know, let's face it, Italy's army isn't really doing much to uphold i mean sicily had already fallen and and the allies were on the march you know from the boot all the way heading northward but when it feels like hey this is really tipping to go the other way then everybody's on board with the allies and with with the west and reintegrating to the uh you know the the future of where europe western europe at least is going to go politically so yeah there's there's some expediency here um but this is Rossellini kind of speaking to his people and saying, okay, let's, let's try to put some of this behind us. And that message is probably going to go, go down easier for some than it is for others. Yeah. yeah. And it's also something that every country engaged in to some extent, you know, in post-war French cinema, you'd think that everyone in France was a resistance fighter <laughs> uh, based on the way they depicted the war, but that yeah. wasn't true at all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And similarly in America, I mean, we didn't have as direct experience of Nazism, but we definitely ignored the threat of it for a long time and just were like well that's a europe problem oh yeah but, there were a know, lot of sympathizers as, right? yeah as soon as the war kicks in it's like no we're we were against them the entire time and we're <laughs> the freedom fighters here um so every country kind of speaks to their own mythology and i i definitely think it's just interesting the way that this film kind of establishes a mythology for italy to build on yeah i mean i'm sure i come you know at this from a particular perspective uh, we'll probably get into this more in our I imagine by the time we get to Germany year zero, but a a very, very brief version of my own family history is that my mom's family was, um, my grandparents were Holocaust refugees and my great grandparents were Holocaust victims. So I, I probably view these sort of things. I mean, I'm sure I view these, all of these films, any film involving this era with kind of a specific lens. And and I think it, it, it to your point, David, it, it is also true that Rossellini was not making this film for three uh, or four Americans to talk about 60 or 70 years later, he was making it for Italians at the time and, and yeah, trying to build in, probably in some ways his own faith back in, in what was going to come next and in these incredibly uncertain times. So I think that's relevant as well. I, I, I just, I, yeah, I find all of the, to Scott's point, all of the post post-war post event, even, to do, as Jordan's been doing, drawing parallels to right now. P nowadays, you know, people want to change th what their message was last week. It, they were always, they always knew that this was happening. They always knew that they were ahead of knowing that they, they knew it even before you even thought of it, you know, and <laughs> all these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it's just an, inter an interesting lens to look at this because I, you know, when, when we see something like the Kenosha set, which has come up, it, we know that that's a propaganda set, right? We, we, it's very clearly presented that way. And I think sometimes we forget that all cinema is propaganda to some degree, and, and <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly, cultural propaganda or, or some other even more blatant propaganda. And this film is definitely is, and, and you know, and it uses one of the oldest tricks in the book, which is that that melodrama. Because, you know, going back to 
talking about the endings of the various chapters and stuff, the entire structure of the film is is melodrama. And at times, I, I found it actually a, a bit much, especially the music. It was so turned up, you know, yeah. on on the yeah. on the melodrama side. For what is a, a a wonderful film, I really enjoyed it. But it's it's just it's it's everything is kind of pitch perfect to that to that kind of vibe. And it's 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 so interesting to see that be used as almost a tool again of of sort of this message it's just it's all fascinating i mean if you can look the way that the characters are connected i think this was brought up in some analysis that i looked at that you've got the the drug addict um who happens to be the girlfriend of the guerrilla fighter that that the nazis are looking (laughs) for she also happens to be getting her drugs from one of the key gestapo (laughs) officers who's looking for you know and then she's oh she's also connected socially to the anna mignani character who is also part of the network incredible um, <laughs> and and then the priest that she's going to get married yeah. uh, by is also like a very close confidant of the network in fact he's the one who's given the the money to give to the guys outside the city when our guerrilla fighter can't go outside of his apartment i mean there's such a close cluster of connections that only melodrama can pull that off because otherwise you step outside and go wait a minute why why did that <laughs> it all just makes sense as you're watching it you don't really think about any of this it's not like what the how is who what but now that you when you put it down just like that i mean it would be hilarious to see like a, a one of those relationship flow charts for this movie totally yeah <laughs> but it ends up being a great tool for how concise the story is like there's yeah. actually a lot that happens very economically without moving around a whole bunch and speaking to its um, to 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 the fact that it is it is a propagandist film for you know for for nationalism really um, and how accurate it is to portray a city under duress as being united as um, uh, as rebels. Uh, just looking at a couple of numbers here, it looks like the Italian population roughly during World War II was like 56 million people, and it and it looks like around 200,000 were partisans that took place and that took part in the resistance. So that's not nobody. But it's a very small percent. Yeah, by by far, the majority of people were either collaborators or I think the the majority were people like us that were on the sidelines and like watching the horror unfold. It gets into a very, very long and complicated discussion as to what is participation, what is involvement, what is collaboration, you know, like what what do sort of people who would imagine themselves as neutral yeah, there's a lot of really interesting writings, especially from recent years, about how the neutral people are in some ways the the most problematic because they enable the fascist leaders to move ever towards whatever they're going. They sort of set what the boundaries can be. Yeah. Um, and and in general, I think everyone is responsible for the actions of their country and group and whatever else. So I think it's it's interesting. But yeah, the vast majority of Italians were. Uh, sort of just going along with whatever it was that was happening and not really doing anything to try to fight it and not probably not doing anything to actively try to encourage the worst behaviors, but were just kind of finding their way through, but they weren't doing anything to stop it for sure. But I think that's a, that's a great point, Arik, that, that it depends on what you mean by participation. Yeah. Like, I don't want to make us all feel neutered here. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> like I'm making some, you know, uh, political drawings and posting them. We're having a conversation here today that, that, that in, in some small way, like, takes analysis of, of the situation seriously. Like, so, I mean, I, I'm not saying that we're all sitting on the sidelines, but there, so there is there is use to just having the discourse, right? You don't have to be planting bombs somewhere. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, no, no. There's plenty of roles. And I think people can 
try to, I mean, even just visibly behaving a certain way in, in public can be a huge, right? Like, you know, if there's some out group and you visibly support a member of that group in public that can change, that can help modify the social narrative. I, I think we currently live in an age where there's like a lot of prophylactic resistance, you know, like, oh, I'm on Twitter retweeting this tweet from somebody. I'm a resistance fighter. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's like, okay, yeah. you're making yourself feel better. And that's great. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah, I think the, we're all going to have to, I mean, I think most societies have to grapple with what participation means in various things. And certainly we are no better. And silence is complicity. So, yeah. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. And there are really, I mean, I know we try not to go too deeply into one political slant or another, but um, objectively speaking, like looking at the behavior of Mussolini, there are some really interesting parallels between him and Trump in terms of the flexibility of opinion, like you were bringing up, like the, the messaging changes so quickly, you know, and contradicts itself constantly. And that that's very Mussolini-esque, you know, like there's some distinction to be drawn between like a Mussolini... Um, uh, rule and someone like Hitler or Stalin, like if we want to split hairs here, like Stalin and Hitler are thought of as totalitarian leaders and Mussolini uh, was, was thought of authoritarian. And it's because thought control wasn't as much an object of the fascist regime in Italy. Um, you had to behave a certain way, but you didn't necessarily have to think all the right things at all, all, all the right times, which is why his son was able to, you know, have this film industry project and actually work with people like DeSica and Antonioni. Like, these guys weren't fascists, right? But they could. there was room for them within that system because it wasn't necessarily thought control 24 hours. But I think it's also an aspect of the fact that Mussolini's platform was constantly changing. You know, it was like he started off as a socialist and then he was against socialists. You know, he started off uh, being called like the priest eater or something like that because he was so against, you know, Catholicism. And then he ends up in bed with, with the Catholics because it's it suits him. And so, you know, again, like Hitler wanted a signed photograph or something and he denies it because he had almost nothing to do with Hitler. And then, of course, we know how that worked out. So there's this flexibility, like you can't pin down what the what the rules of the fascist government are, because it's whatever opportunity presents itself. That's that's what the new rules are. Right. It's it's bluster. It's posturing. It's kind of just sticking your chest out bravura style and saying, you know, I'm just going to say whatever crazy shit comes to mind with 100 percent conviction and force of authority. And you're just going to have to go along with it because I'm never going to back down and say, oh, I was wrong there. I mean, that's very, very yep. much the parallel to what we're living under these days. Yep. And declarations of like, I have this many men, this many tanks. And it's not true. It doesn't matter. Just oh, as long as you say it with the bluster that you're talking about, David, then that's the point. It's the show. That's the main event. It's that scene from Great Dictator where the Mussolini guy is and the and the Hitler guy are like putting their chairs up as high as they can. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's it right there. <laughs> that's a weird segue, but I, I wanted to call out one really funny moment in this film, yeah. uh, which was when the priest goes into that 
antiques office and and the antique shop and he's like sees the naked lady and he turns her and then he sees her butt so he turns the saint statue <laughs> yeah it's a perfect fit great there's actually was I mean, there's a fair amount needed. of comedy in the film that for sure uh, yeah. i think sometimes gets overlooked amidst the tragedy but it's i mean even in the midst of like the most tense situations you know the scene that leads up to anna mangani's death it still has the part where the priest like knocks out the old guy so he's like <laughs> yeah. dead yeah yeah you, re- you really let him have it with a frying oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. trying to wake him up afterwards. Oh, good and there's like a gun under the under the. Cover. Yeah, yeah, and he drops the bomb and barely catches it. In yeah, the yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> the priest was so great. That actor was incredible. That's the same guy who was that kind of uh, ogreish, um, kind of tyrant in the Flowers of Saint Francis, right? Aldo Fabrizi wasn't that the yeah. the oh, guy with big bushy eyebrows and was kind of, you know, raging. So. Yeah, go ahead. No, I think so. Yeah, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, I, yeah. I've so. tried to black out any memory of that. I hate that movie. So oh. <laughs> <trying> to... <laughs> I have a very, I have a very like, like extremes Rossellini like history. Like I either there are a bunch of his films that I absolutely love. I'm actually a huge fan of his history films, like Taking a Power oh, yeah. and and sure. the Cartesia and and all those the really dry ones that everyone kind of whatever. I I love those and I I, I like some of his other films, but like I hate. Flowers of St. Francis. I hate most of the Bergman films. Like I, I, I am very like uh, um, extreme with with Rossellini. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's me. Oh, well, we're not gonna try to you know bend your bend your arm and force you to change. <laughs> so, but very interesting. I, yeah, I, I am actually fascinated to hear some more. So maybe if we per- pursue some of those other uh, box sets, we can have that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's he's one of the most. Sorry, Jordan. No, he's one ahead. of the most like. Uh, Biggest disparity between my favorites and my least favorites of almost any director, I think, in the collection. Just like, it, I either am just like, oh, this is so great, or I'm I'm just out completely. So it's it's funny. I'm not usually like that, you know. But he's yeah. he, he brings. I guess it's all emotion, right? He brings something, even if it's even if it's really not liking stuff. I mean, you're not alone, Arik. That this was his kind of coming out party, and there's a lot of people that think this is his best film. And everything after the War trilogy is really a different experience. I love, I mean, Taking a Power of Louis Fourteenth is literally, I mean, I just adore that film. So I, 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 he, I, he gets me back there. And then some other ones as well. I, I don't, I don't want to make it too dramatic, but I do not like Flowers of St. Francis. That is, that is very true. Well, you bring up the comedic bits, and it's, uh, I know we're going to wind down here, but I have to bring up Federico Fellini here, uh, was, was part of the group of creators. He was one of the co-writers, and he ends up being part of the fold on Paisan as well. So, this film, uh, as well as the close of World War II, is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, and Fellini is celebrating his 100th birthday this year. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. So I just thought I'd draw attention to the fact that Fellini was part of this project, but also reportedly responsible for a lot of those comedic moments, like at least not removing them from the, from the script. So well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Fellini had his own problem with the critics when he started making films that were more comedic and sort of more airy because they weren't near realist enough either, you know. And then so he like, leads us to that that La Dolce Vita, you know, sort of the film of that, you know, post-war Italian decadence or whatever. And those are so good. I mean, they're really oh, good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So does anyone have any closing thoughts before we wrap up today? I, I just want to say that the the box set is really a, a splendid little artifact. I think the Criterion Channel has um, 
this film and the supplements, maybe not all of the supplements, but a pretty good selection. I think there's four different extra bits. Um, but I'll just advocate, you know, this is, this is a really nice item to have on one's shelf. It's the packaging is great. And, uh, you know, the Blu-ray restoration really is worth it. I mean, I remember when the, the DVD set first came out and it wasn't released on Blu-ray, even though Criterion was doing Blu-rays at the time. Um, I think the thinking was, well, you know, these films are so rough and so kind of rugged that, you know, Blu-ray maybe isn't really necessary. But uh, it is interesting. You, you can see from moment to moment where the film stock does change. There's little, even sometimes little little reaction shots where it's like all of a sudden you see a lot more grain and a lot more roughness. to, And then it switches back to more of like a studio type of shot, you know, on higher quality film. So it is interesting just to sort of see you know, how this piece, you know, this project was cobbled together. And again, just a, just a testament to really uh, incredibly courageous and, and, and driven filmmaking under really the most, awful of circumstances it's it's a very heroic effort that uh, the whole creative team put into this uh it certainly created um you know an opening for cinema to express itself in, in new ways so uh it's important uh, but even beyond its its historic significance i think it still tells a very compelling story so definitely worth checking out and, and revisiting i think there's a lot of power here I just want to second that recommendation for the box set. It is one of the nicer package. I mean, the Criterion Collection is pretty uniform, pretty uniformly nice. Not entirely, but pretty uniformly. But the the um this box set is really special and wonderful, and uh, definitely. I mean, I think all three films are available on the channel. So it, it and most of the supplements appear to be there. So that's definitely a great way to get into it. But if if you find yourself being compelled by these films, it's it's a really nice thing to have. Yeah, there's a great commentary track that's on the disc that's not on the channel. That's the exact kind of example of the kind of thing that, yeah, for sure, are not going to be there. Uh, as for me, cl closing thoughts, I, I I really appreciate this conversation with you all because I, I was not, I hadn't completely sort of formalized my some of my thoughts on some of this stuff, and that this discussion actually really helped me. So hopefully, it will help folks out there as well. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a great movie, and it's it's a fascinating movie. And I think there's still, I think we could have taken this discussion in ten other different directions, but. It, there was a lot here to, to think about, and I, I really appreciate that. So thank you all. Uh, yeah, I mean, the resonance of the film is, I think, it speaks to its power that's ever-changing. And the fact that we thought to discuss it now in this completely unprecedented time, I think, speaks to how multifaceted it is and how many avenues it can go down as far as uh, modern relevance. So yeah, it's definitely one to own and one to keep reconsidering uh, as the years go on. Totally agree. Well, thanks so much, you guys, for gathering this morning. It was really nice to... Or, or afternoon for you, David. Together, <laughs> yeah. have the powwow, have the community. Yeah, it's definitely really nice to reconnect with you guys. I had a chance to spend a little bit of time with you last July when I was on my little sojourn to California. So it is a great thing. Are we going to continue exploring this trilogy? Do we want to commit to a couple more episodes on uh, Paisan and Germany Year Zero? I'm game uh, here. Yeah, I'm, I'm in if you are. Let's do it. Okay, cool. guys. Yeah, we should probably have a little bit of time on our hands over the next few <laughs> yeah, weeks. Yeah, <I'm> <laughs> I just have to pick out which pajamas I want to wear. <laughs> I have a six-month-old child. I do not have more free time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like I, a I, more background noise. But I love doing this with you all, so I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll find a way. <laughs> we'll talk to you all soon then. Probably maybe 
next month we'll have uh, episode two of this series. Uh, we'll focus on Paisan, which came out uh, in 1946, the year following Rome Open City. Until then, we are thinking of all of our friends uh, everywhere that are going through this hard time. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks. But you never see the end of the road while you're traveling.